I would ask that we remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which we'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 6. We come now in our continuing exposition of uh, Mark's Gospel to chapter 6. This morning, we'll, as has been our practice, give an overview of the whole chapter before we go into the details of the stories that are gathered here. So I want to read verses 1 through 6, and then also over to verses 53 through 56. The Gospel of St. Mark, beginning verses 1 through 6. Then Jesus went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could not do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went out about the villages in a circuit teaching. And then over to verse 53. When he had crossed over, or when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through all the surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick and wherever they heard he was. Whenever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Have you heard of the three R's that are the pillars of common sense education? I expect you probably have. The three R's are reading, writing, and arithmetic. And of course that's an ironic phoneme in English uh, because of the way they're, they're spelled. Uh, but what I found very surprising is that that has a long-standing history. Uh, it, the phrase is cited from a speech by Sir William Curtis in 1795, and then referenced again in the ladies' magazine from 1818. But most surprising of all is a passage in St. Augustine's Confessions where he references the, the three basic uh, tenets or uh, pillars of, of education. But more importantly... There are three R's that are doctrinally essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Redemption, regeneration, and resurrection. Now, these three R's, as we said, doctrinally are essential. All that is entailed in redemption, regeneration, and resurrection as biblically revealed are essential. You don't have the gospel if any of it's missing. The Gospel of Mark, giving straight talk about Jesus Christ, establishes and illustrates for us these three doctrines identified in the person and work of one who is uniquely Son of God and Son of Man. I want to just keep the big picture here, so I want to quickly review over chapters 1 and following, bringing us up to chapter 6. If you'll remember, we started out in chapter 1 with the Gospel beginning. That's where Mark starts, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is uniquely Son of God. He is the source of the gospel. The source of the gospel is not in Jesus as a guru. 
Not in Jesus as a philosopher or an itinerant teacher with a new idea, a philosophy of living. This is a way to live the good life. It was popular then and popular now, but that's not what Jesus was about. Jesus wasn't giving us a program of self-help. We need to hear that clearly in every generation because very often these are the things that are misguided and misdirected in terms of really understanding what the good news about salvation is that it is wrapped up in redemption, regeneration, and resurrection, and that's sourced in the person, who Jesus is, and in Jesus' work, what Jesus did and is doing. We go on in chapter 1, if you'll remember, with the gospel claim. The gospel claims this world for the kingdom of God. And that, of course, brings conflict. I, I don't like conflict. Do you like conflict? I try to avoid conflict. But what we're getting to and what really is uh, emphasized in chapter 6 is that there is conflict from the gospel in this sinful world. We go on in chapter 1 with the gospel campaign. As we, There we saw that the Holy Spirit ordered Jesus into the wilderness on a campaign of an assault mission against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what Jesus accomplished there, he continues to direct for his followers, for his apostles and his disciples and his followers, and, and the church, what we even refer to historically as the church militant. The church on an assault mission in the world against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That then uh, brought us to chapter 2. As the gospel source being uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ, the son of man, has authority on earth. So that's where Mark went to tell us straight talk about Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he does has authority on earth. Chapter 3, the gospel source being uniquely Jesus, son of God. Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. In chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3. We saw that even some of his own uh, earthly family came out to him and they thought he had lost his mind. And yet Jesus tells us, no, there's a, a new and greater family of God. That family of God is created through Christ as the head, the new covenant family of God. And it comes through a new birth, a supernatural salvation. Chapter 4, Jesus goes on to demonstrate that, that being uniquely son of God, he is Lord. And where we saw there the the parables of the kingdom. You see, Jesus as Lord comes from heaven. He's the mediator. He's the one who's entrusted with the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. So he can tell us what the kingdom of heaven is about. He can tell us what it is. Not only can he tell us as the mediator of the kingdom of heaven, but he proves it as he is creator. He is the uncreated God. And this is uh, just a phenomenal as we get into chapter 4. And then from chapter 4 we go on to chapter 5. As the gospel source being uniquely son of God. Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead. Even between this natural world and the other supernatural world. So I hope you can see something of the progression of the theme. That's being developed uh, from Mark. That gives us straight talk about who Jesus Christ is. And the source of the gospel in Him personally, who he is, and in his work, what he does, and what he's continuing to do. That brings us then to chapter 6, as we have an overview of chapter 6 this morning. The gospel conflict in this sinful world. I told you earlier that, you know, I don't like conflict. When Jesus went out into the wilderness on that mission uh, ordered by the Holy Spirit, the assault mission against the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
He was letting us know that we're going to follow him, the great captain of salvation, and the gospel is going to bring conflict in this sinful world. And we can't avoid that conflict. Uh, We're not intending to be offensive. We don't use the weapons of the world and the weapons of the flesh. But the gospel sets people on edge, and it causes conflict. The gospel causes conflict in this sinful world. And that conflict is against unbelief, against disbelief, against false belief, against weak belief. But saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. And I'm glad that we're going to spend time going through chapter 6 to impress us with this message. That saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ It is the victory that overcomes the world. The conflict that is brought on by the good news. Why would the good news of Jesus Christ cause such conflict? Well, the answer is because of sin. Sin is real. Sin in this fallen world. And that sin sets people against a holy God. And the gospel coming telling us God's way of redemption and regeneration and of resurrection faces and squarely attacks unbelief and disbelief and false belief and weak belief. And these things are presented to us in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. In verses 1 through 6, we find the conflict with unbelief. Unbelief is expressed by common rejections. Uh, I find it somewhat um, jaw-dropping, I guess I would say. But I shouldn't because Jesus tells us himself in using a proverb about a prophet not being accepted because of overfamiliarity. But he goes back to Nazareth, and we'll talk about his return to Nazareth. Was this the first time, or did he go to Nazareth more than once? Uh, we'll talk about that when we come to look more closely at verses 1 through 6. But he returns to his hometown. And what does the conflict with the gospel bring there? That, that people don't see past the familiarity of Jesus and not the Christ. And that common kind of rejections that are expressed there that I'm sure that we have faced as well, uh, particularly when it comes from within our own family or extended family or a community of friends or acquaintances, there are those who are unbelieving when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they may have many thoughts and ideas about him, but like what's recorded here of Jesus' hometown, many of them are just offended by him. That brings us to the second story in chapter 6. That's about disbelief. The disbelief here comes from Jesus commissioning, authorizing, and sending out uh, his apostles in companies of two, in pairs. He directs them to go out and to preach repentance and to preach the gospel and uh, to, to manifest the authority that he has transferred to them in healing the sick and casting out demons. But he also warns them and tells them, That that message is going to be rejected. That they're going to face disbelief. And that disbelief comes in many ways, but chiefly around the claim for the need for repentance, for conversion, and judgment. Oh, I don't think God's like that. Oh, that's not the message I really want to hear. I want Jesus to, to heal. We'll call on Jesus. We want Him to do wonders. There are many, again, notions and ideas and things that are appealing about Jesus. But when the message of the gospel comes that there must be repentance and conversion and judgment, that God will not wink at sin, that that sin is real, 
That in this fallen and sinful world, there must be a, a, a return to God in reference to His plan of redemption, God's way of buying and paying for sin, and it's offensive. And that that takes with it a need for supernatural power and work. What God can do that humans can't do. Humans can't save themselves or can't save even the people they love. And this is a matter of disbelief. People are like, well, it can't be that way. God's not really that way. I don't, I don't like this stuff about judgment. I don't want to hear about the, the wages of sin is death. We don't want to deal with death. Let's, let's talk about other things. Let's talk about happy things. Let's talk about things that will, will um, you know, get our minds off our troubles. But the message of the gospel is repentance, conversion, and judgment. That people need salvation. God's way of redemption. That it must come through regeneration. And that there is a promise of resurrection. But people are in disbelief about that. Then and now. The third story goes on in verses 14 through 29 about false belief. This is very curious and I know some wonder, well, why is this story in the midst of chapter 6 about uh, John the Baptist, about his martyrdom, and about Herod and the the intrigues between uh, what was going on in Herod's court and even with his uh, illegitimate wife and how John, as a prophet of God, decried the sin. And so we look at that story in the midst of this and we realize that there is false belief that directs people to behave in ways that are ungodly. These false beliefs are often fed by religious superstitions. Do you think there are religious superstitions in our day? I can point out many to, to, uh, of them. Not just in terms of world religions, even within the broad pale of what's called Christianity. There's a lot of superstitious religious uh, false beliefs that, that that inform people and direct people and, and the way that they behave because of that. Along with that is also unbiblical interpretive traditions. People go about interpreting the Bible, not from what Scripture has to say, but from these traditions that have uh, been coming and going from generation to generation. Uh, sometimes they're dressed up in new terms and new ideas, but they go back to core errors and mistakes. And so uh, it's interesting to look at this story of Herod and John the Baptist and John the Baptist martyrdom and to see here the outworking of these false beliefs. And we need to be warned about. We need to be warned against false superstitions. And we need to be careful of unbiblical interpretive uh, traditions. And so we go back to Scripture and we look clearly and we want to hear straight talk from the Holy Scriptures. This is what the Bible says, line upon line, precept upon precept. Here is what the Word of God says. And it's a challenge to us, to our faith. That brings us to that uh, next story that we have here in chapter 6 and verses 30 through 52. This has to do with weak belief in not keeping Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and teachings. Because see what happened when the, the disciples, the apostles specific, specifically, the twelve apostles, came back from their team mission that Jesus sent them on. They were thrilled and they were excited. Although they had encountered some resistance, they also had seen what we would call success. They had seen the power and demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit. And they had preached faithfully the gospel of the kingdom. 
And they came back and Jesus said, you need a break. We need to get away. We need to to have uh, some time alone and to, to recuperate and to rest. But the crowds continued to press and to follow them. And it comes to a point where Jesus then in the famous feeding of the multitude. And he taught them a lesson about faith. They had just come back. But they were not keeping a Christ-centered approach to what was going on. They were tired and weary. I think they were feeling kind of excited about what had happened. And um, they needed to be reminded that the gospel comes with our commitment to service, not in terms of the way of the world to be celebrated. It's a lesson that we still need to hold closely to today. Because when Jesus told them to go across the, the lake, and they started out to get away from the crowd, you know the story after the feeding of the multitude that a storm came up upon the lake, and they were rowing so hard trying to get on the other side, and Jesus walked across the water to them. And they were afraid. They thought he was a ghost. And Jesus spoke to them directly, identifying himself. And the scriptures say that they had not understood about the feeding of the multitude. Their heart was, was blocked up. They didn't get it because they did not keep a Christ-centered focus on Scripture and the testimonies and the teaching of who Jesus is. So again, I think there is a very wonderful lesson for us here, a warning and a direction about our not giving in to weak faith because we get our eyes off the Lord Jesus, off of the Christ-centered Scripture, that everything in Scripture finds its meaning, its yes and its amen in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He does. And it's easy for us to get our eyes off of that. Even when we have seen and, and been a part of wonderful things that are connected to the gospel, but then if we're not careful, we start looking for our own celebrity. Or we start looking and thinking, oh, things are going good. And then we find ourselves in a hard spot, rowing against the hardships and taking our eyes off of the the focus on the person of Christ. And so there's a great lesson for us here in the midst of this chapter 6 about weak faith. But then this morning I also read to you the conclusion, the opening and the conclusion, because I want you you to see where chapter 6 goes and where it ends in verses 53 through 56. Where does it end? It ends with saving faith. Even the weak faith of the apostles does not uh, um, limit or defeat the gospel. Well, what does Jesus do? He goes about and makes his presence among all the peoples that are gathering to him. They're flocking to him. And the saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is what overcomes the world. And that's where chapter 6 ends for us. For all this conflict with unbelief and disbelief and false belief and weak belief, we come to the conclusion that saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's what I want to press upon you and I want to keep before you, uh, elaborating on the things that we've uh, introduced this morning, going through the, the exposition of this chapter and each story. But knowing where we're going to end up at the end of chapter 6. Saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the victory that overcomes the world. So Mark continues here in chapter 6 with stories from the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. While also keeping the main theme of his person and work as the source of the gospel. He ties it together by repeated words and themes and actions from the previous chapters. It's like weaving a tapestry of the redemption story. I've used that illustration for you before about the weaving of the tapestry. And here I want you to see the same thing. Here's a a good and sanctified exercise for you. 
Uh, you talk about things being practical and the, the practicality, the application of the Word of God. Well, I want to offer this to you as a sanctified exercise that in the coming weeks, I mean in this coming week, immediately, that you go back from chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark and you read specifically looking for these recurring words and themes like this. Human responses of being astonished, marveled, greatly amazed, and other such expressions. Just take and read chapters 1 through 6. I bet it wouldn't take you 15 minutes. But looking specifically for the way in which it, it, it narrates for us and accounts for us these responses, these human responses to the message that we have in um, the Gospel of Mark. And then you could take another reading through these chapters and, and look specifically for Jesus' divine authority being revealed. Jesus' divine authority to commission and command His twelve apostles. It's here in chapter 6, but it's also been a previous theme of Jesus choosing the twelve out of His disciples of a larger group. So look for Jesus' divine authority when He claims that He has authority on earth to forgive sin. You see, those themes that are introduced and continue to be woven together to make known to us what is the good news, what is the story of Jesus Christ and His power to save. Jesus' divine authority to commission and command His twelve apostles, authorizing them with His teaching and preaching. I pointed out to you that even though there are wonders that Jesus does and these miracles that He performs, the emphasis throughout, and you shouldn't lose this, is on teaching and preaching. Jesus went preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus taught them here and there. Jesus sent out His twelve apostles, commissioning them to preach the repentance and conversion and judgment of God that is coming in the power of the gospel. All the other works and demonstrations of power and wonder were simply an exclamation point to the greater message of the gospel of redemption, regeneration, and resurrection. Uh, You'll see if you were to read again through these six chapters, paying attention to the recording of eyewitnesses, the eyewitness accounts that are brought forward, expressed by the immediacy of action or the mood of urgency, And even from unbelievers. We read about uh, believers expressing this wonder and this immediacy of response. But we also read about unbelievers who respond and who demonstrate this. And we also read one of the uh, challenging things here in the first six verses in this first story is Jesus' amazement at unbelief. We often read of Jesus being thrilled and excited about belief. The woman who touched his garment. Your faith has made you whole. The friends who brought their paralyzed uh, buddy and they took the, the roof apart to let Jesus down. And Jesus uh, responded and, and uh, blessed them in reference to their faith. The man whom he cast the demons out of and blessed him and sent him on his way to be a witness to the power of the gospel. The transformation of regeneration. And that's going to come back as a theme and development within the gospel of St. Mark. But even unbelievers expressed amazement and bewilderment and perplexity and remained in their unbelief. And then Jesus himself expresses dismay, marveled at unbelief. How could they be so hard-hearted? So we'll see that, and that's an important theme. I I would encourage you to look back through and, and see those words and those themes and those stories as they continue to weave together 
We also have uh, the two natures of the uncreated divine and the uncorrupted human of one Lord Jesus Christ revealed by holy compassion. Who could love like Jesus? We're called to love like Jesus. We, we heard that this morning in the, the scriptures from Colossians about calling us to uh, forgive and to love like Jesus. But where do we turn in the gospel accounts to, to see and to witness the compassion of Jesus? That would be a wonderful study for you to look through these six chapters, read through them, and pay particular a note. Not just, not just where the word compassion is used, but in the actions of the Lord Jesus. Can you identify his compassion? How Jesus loves. <clears throat> well, we also have Jesus' self-identification. You know, there are many who, who say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be divine. He never claimed to be the Messiah, blah, 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 blah. If you don't know the scriptures, you could be taken away by that kind of stuff. But if you know the scriptures, you can absolutely scorn that kind of folly. Jesus repeatedly identified himself. He identifies himself as the God-man. He knew his mission. And Jesus referred to himself as the I Am. Jesus' identification as the I Am over the natural world of the wind and the sea. That, that again, uh, astounded his disciples and his apostles as they witnessed his power over creation. Well, that comes to us again in chapter 6. But in doing so, Jesus again identifies himself as the I Am. As God, the uncreated creator. And then we have the recurring crowds. The crowds keep coming to Jesus. Although he hits uh, different places where people reject him. And he warned his disciples that they would face that same kind of rejection. Whenever you go into a a home or a town or a village or a, a metropolis, if you're not received, shake the dust off your feet. There will be rejection. And so we have accounts of those who did reject Jesus. But what rises above all that are the recurring crowds of people bringing the infirmed on beds and the sick begging that they might just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Do you see how the story spread? Some friends brought a paralyzed friend and they would not be stopped by the crowd but climbed up on the roof and took the roof apart and and lowered their friend into the presence of Jesus. And what do we read later on here at the end of chapter 6? That many are bringing... Their loved ones on beds to Jesus. Those who can't walk or come under their own power. Who are infirmed and unable. Their friends are bringing them to Jesus. Why? They heard the the message. They heard the story. Others that are gathered there are asking as Jesus walks through the marketplace and walks among the crowds. If they could just touch the hem of his garment. Where did they hear about that? There was a woman who reached out in faith. Who thought she could secretly just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. That story spread like wildfire. And now everyone is in faith, trusting and believing if they could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And what does Jesus do? He walks freely among them. Wherever the crowds are gathered, he's there. Where do we get this notion of a stingy Jesus? I don't think we read consistently. We jump over things. And here at the end of chapter 6, the saving power of the gospel is what is emphasized overcoming all manner of unbelief. Those are messages I believe that we need to hear. This straight talk about Jesus Christ from the Scripture record confirms the source of the gospel, of the good news, to be the one accomplishing God's way of redemption. 
It's God's way of redemption. It's an offense to the world. It brings conflict with the sinful world because it tells us we can't save ourselves. It's God's way of redemption. It's affected through a supernatural regeneration in this natural world. You must be born again. This isn't about self-improvement. This is not a philosophy of life and finding and establishing the good life for you. This is God's way of redemption that says there must be a supernatural transformation. He who has the creative powers over the world of creation also has the authority in this natural world to bring about a supernatural transformation. And that's called regeneration, being born again, being born from above, God's way of salvation. And the commanding message is the resurrection life. Jesus commands the message of the resurrection life through saving faith. He says, you must be born again, raised up out of the deadness of your sin and your trespasses, your offenses to God. The people who were offended at Jesus because of their familiarity with him, they offend God. If we remain in our sin, we offend God. That's why the message of the gospel, the good news, is about redemption, what we can't do for ourselves, regeneration that must be supernatural, and the promise of resurrection life. We're raised to newness of life, justified and sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ with a promise of resurrection and glorification just like His resurrection. And we're told that that will happen. It will come to uh, to pass. It is the saving faith that overcomes. It's the victory over the world. And that's what we need to hear. We, we, we grow weary in this world. We begin to look away from Christ-centered truth in the Scripture. We can become overly familiar and say, Oh, I've heard all this before, preacher. I've heard about Jesus walking on the water. I've heard about uh, the miracles that Jesus did. Those are wonderful stories, but that's then and this is now. You don't know what I'm dealing with. God knows what you're dealing with. And that's why the message of the gospel and the power of the scriptures are to tell us this is the victory that overcomes the world. Sin brings conflict. Chiefly, it brings conflict with God. But it also spills over into conflict within this world. And that's why the gospel is called the gospel of peace. It brings peace and reconciliation with God and with one another. It is purposefully that we heard those scriptures in Colossians 3 this morning to tell us about what it is to be at peace with God and with one another. The world cries out for peace, peace, and there is no peace. That's what the prophet Isaiah said generations ago. And it's still the same. People look for peace here and peace there. It's the peace that they want of the good life. I want a peace of the good life, not soul peace with God. But that's why the gospel is the saving faith that overcomes the world. Because it tells us, of that peace that transfers us beyond this world. And it is in this natural world that that supernatural transformation is effected. And so I want you to focus on this chapter. I want you to see it in the midst of the the larger context of Mark. And I pray that the Lord would bless us to hold on to and to believe and to, to, to keep the gospel as the saving faith that overcomes the world as it is sourced in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the essential 
revelation that we have from God about the need for redemption, for regeneration, and for resurrection. We've talked about the Lord's Supper and how it is that the Lord Jesus encourages and builds our faith through this Lord's Supper. I like to think of it in in terms of of Jesus feeding the multitude. I I know that was not the institution of the Lord's Supper, but I think it was something of a preview because Jesus went on to say, this is my body and this is my blood. And the people got confused. Some of them took literally, remember about the the need that we have for um, understanding biblical interpretation? Jesus' words there, he says, my words, in that very instance, Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are truth. But they thought he was speaking literally. He said, look, your your, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. I'm giving you the true bread from heaven. And so what Jesus tells us is this Lord's Supper has been so set apart to help encourage and build our faith that we need faith in the Lord Jesus Christ more so than we even need food and drink. You understand you need food and drink to live. It's a wonder. I'm always amazed as how uh, food that we eat and the drink that we have nourishes our bodies. And, and not only does it nourish our body, it, it's a delight. There are many foods and, and, and meals that we enjoy. Spiritually, we need to so enjoy the Lord's Supper that, that Jesus, through faith, is our food and our drink. He is the life-giving presence to us, more so than any external food. So that's what this Lord's Supper represents to us. It symbolizes that we partake by faith in the life of the Lord Jesus. He is our life. He nourishes us by His means of grace, by His favor and presence, by saving faith. He is present with us in this sinful world. And though there are many conflicts with the world, the flesh, and the devil, saving faith overcomes the world. And our participating in this Lord's Supper by faith assures us. But it's an assurance that is validated by the secret working of the Holy Spirit of God. There's nothing I can do to empower these elements. I rehearse the words of institution, not because they're a magical incantation. I'm not casting a spell over you. I'm telling you, this is what Jesus said. I don't need to improve on that. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said this. Do you believe it? Believing, receive. And receiving, have life in Jesus' name. Our